Hey, we wrapped up the Genesis series last week, so now we're going to have a really short two-week series on basically God's or Jesus' invitation to follow him. And then from there, we're actually, so this is going to be kind of a little one-off series for just um, Sherwood. Um, And actually, I think um, Hillsborough is going to do the same thing that we're doing, so they're going to do a little series on Jesus' invitation to follow. I'm going to teach on it this week. We'll look at it a little bit more next week on just what Jesus um, kind of invites us into and how he invites us into following him. Then that's going to kick off another series that we're actually all three of our churches are going to do together. Um, It's going to be called the Followers Series, and it's really just going to be a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think through that, we're going to see a lot of like the implications and the expressions of a follower of Jesus throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, and I'm super, super excited um, about that series. I got to pick that one. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, And so, but today we're going to take our text from John chapter 21. No, we're not. John chapter 1. And here we see just kind of a really cool invitation from Jesus to follow him. And so we're going to read from verse 35 all the way to 50. If you don't have your Bible, we have it on the screen too. Uh, John 1, 35. Here's the story. It says, the next day, John was there. This is John the Baptist, by the way. And John the Baptist, he had his his dudes. He had his disciples. And something happens, though, in this story where his disciples make a rather wise decision. John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus. The setting is John the Baptist is there by the Sea of Galilee, and he's baptizing. His disciples are with him. And then he looks out on the horizon, and there is Jesus walking by, and John the Baptist stops everything that he's doing. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him, say this, and they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you guys want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, uh, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. I like the New King James translation, and other various translations say, come and see. Come and see. And um, that's what Jesus says to them when they said, well, where are you staying? And so they went and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that whole day with him. It was about the four, four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said, and he had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we've found him. We found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are the Simon, son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, which is also translated, when it's translated, as Peter. And the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found him, the one that Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, said Nathanael. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. And what does Philip say? Come and see. Again, I love that phrase. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, 
Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And then I didn't write the rest of it down there, but then he just freaks out and says, oh my gosh, that's awesome. My translation. <laughs> I love the way that this story unfolds, though, because John the Baptist is there by the Sea of Galilee, or not, I mean by the Jordan River baptizing, and one of, he does the, what he does absolutely better than anything else. He points to Jesus. And I think that's probably why Jesus said that there is no greater man born to a woman besides John the Baptist, because John the Baptist, or no, no greater prophet besides John the Baptist, and if you think about it, John the Baptist doesn't seem like that great of a prophet because he didn't do any miracles like all the other prophets of the Old Testament did. He didn't do like all of these amazing, um, extravagant acts like the other ones did, but he just always pointed to Jesus. There he is. That's the one. And then so his disciples soon became Jesus' disciples. And I think that should be kind of the goal for all of us that want to make disciples. Is we don't want people following us. We want to be those like John the Baptist that point to Jesus. And so they were very curious. They're like, this is the guy. This is the guy that John ba- the Baptist said he's not even worthy to unstrap his shoes. We've got we to gotta check this guy out. We've got to find out what he's all about. And then so they're following Jesus. And the way that I envision it, I don't know how it really played out, but the way that I always imagine it is they're kind of like a little bashful. They're kind of following him at a distance. They're curious. They're checking him out. And Jesus knows that he's being followed, turns around and says, what are you guys looking for? Oh, and I could imagine them kind of stammering, uh, where are you staying? And Jesus graciously just says, come and see. Invites them in. And it doesn't say that anything about the interaction or the experience that they had with Jesus, but you've got to imagine it must have been profound. It must have been amazing because it says specifically that they stayed the whole entire day. There's a point in the text that, that points out that they didn't want to leave. But when they did leave, they were so excited that these are as Andrew and John. John ran to get his brother. They both ran to go get their brothers to find out, to tell them that they just found the Messiah. It's a cool story. Um, But the one thing that I want to pull out from this text is just that simple phrase, um, come and see, come and see. And the reason why, you know, because is because Jesus is so much better experienced than he is explained. And that's kind of what I want to like really focus on from this passage. And just in the whole idea of following Jesus and inviting people to follow Jesus, I think it's so important for us to remember that Jesus We can explain him all we want, but Jesus is so much better experienced than he is explained. And I think that's why Jesus said, come and see. I think that's why Philip, when he found Nathanael, and Nathanael was like, "Um, we found him, the Messiah. And Nathanael was questioning, instead of just trying to explain Jesus away and explain who Jesus was, Philip just said, come and see. It's the same thing that happened with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, if you remember the story. Just a couple of chapters after this, Jesus is going through Samaria, and it's one of those stories that, of his just amazing scandalous grace, because he shouldn't have been going through Samaria as a Jew. He shouldn't have been going to Samaria as a rabbi. He shouldn't have been talking to a Samaritan woman as a rabbinic Jew, but he's in Samaria, and he meets this woman at the well 
who not only had a horrible reputation amongst the Jews because she was a Samaritan, but even probably had a horrible reputation amongst the Samaritans because she was at the well in the middle of the day when nobody drew water. She had five husbands previously. The guy she was with now was not her husband. She had a horrible reputation everywhere. But Jesus takes the time to spend with her, to offer her his grace, has this amazing, we get to see the interaction that she has with Jesus in this story, has this amazing interaction. Jesus offers to her the living water so she doesn't have to thirst anymore. She doesn't have to try to fill that thirst and that hunger with other men anymore. I give you the, the, the living water. I offer it to you. He tells her that he's the Messiah, and she's stunned. He tells her how because he's there, he's going to change everything. She's blown away. She runs back into Samaria and just starts telling everybody she knows. Come and see. I found him. She says that. Come and see this man that told me everything I ever did. He is the Messiah. And this is really interesting because it says this in the text in John chapter 4. It says, some people believed because of her testimony, but then... When Jesus came into town, he stayed in Samaria a couple more days, it changed. Everything changed. Her testimony was good. She had a radical experience, and she explained it probably very well. But read what happens after Jesus goes in. Um, John chapter 4, verse 39 says this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Jesus is so much better experienced than he has explained. And so I think our duty, our responsibility, our privilege as Jesus followers are to invite other people to follow and invite other people to follow not just by explaining who Jesus is, but invite other people to follow by saying, come and see, by showing them who Jesus is. So good. But here's the question, because we live in a different day and age. It was different for them because Jesus was actually there. This was 2,000 years ago. This was before Jesus died as a, you know, a, a sacrifice for our sins, rose again, ascended to heaven, and poured out the Spirit, and is no longer with us in body anymore. So we can't just drag people to Jesus. seems like it would be a lot easier if we could do that. But I don't think it would be a lot better. I think what we get to do is a lot better. We get to show them Jesus. And not physically, like say, come and see, like I, that, then people will probably think that we're crazy if we say that we really can take you to Jesus and he's tangible and real and physical. They won't want to follow. <laughs> How do we show them Jesus? I just want to point out two ways. We as followers of Jesus that invite other people to come and see and experience who he is, we do it two, I think, very vitally important ways. One way that we show Jesus, that we demonstrate Jesus, is simply through our community. That's how we do it. We do it through our community. God is community. God exists in this loving network of relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit. And we are made as image bearers of Him. 
And I honestly, wholeheartedly don't believe that we can bear his image the way that we're supposed to if we're not existing in the same kind of relationships that he's existing in. And he exists in these loving relationships. And we need to exist in loving relationships with each other. And then we can better bear the image of who he is to the world. I think it's vitally important. I think it's so important. Um, Yeah. I mean, community is critical. We're made to live that way. And if we don't, then we're not being who we're supposed to be. And what's cool about it, as I just kind of have pondered, like what does it mean to be a community that really shares life together and loves each other and has this dynamic that demonstrates who God is just because we have this whole collaboration of people that are vastly different, that come from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different ethnicities, all sorts of different desires and passions and and these people that are so even different worldviews to some degree, but they're so different and they care for each other despite all their differences, I think that screams God. I think it screams Jesus because he is all about family and togetherness and looking past people's problems and into the real person of who they are and then appreciating that in them. I think that's how God exists and also realizing that we need that part of them. And the cool thing about demonstrating God and who he is through our community is that I think every single one of us, because we are all so different, I think every single one of us carries a different attribute of God's character, but none of us carry all of God's character. You know what I mean? I mean, God's character is very complex and very beautiful and amazing, and none of us can really kind of really embody all of it, but I think all of us embody some of it. Some of us lean a lot more towards God's generosity, and others don't. Some of us lean a lot more towards God's um, justice, and others don't. Some of us lean towards God's discipline and ruling, and others don't. Some of us lean toward God, you know, I mean, there's all these amazing, his nurturing, like a mother, his discipline and, and fervor and grit, and what it, God has all of these things, and some of us carry some of them, and others of us don't carry some of them, but when we all come together, I think we can better express the fullness of who God is. Does that make sense? It's so cool. And so when we're just trying to demonstrate God by ourselves as individuals, as individuals, we're only giving people a tiny, minute snippet of who God is. But when they experience all of who we are and all of God's amazing attributes through us as a community of individuals, I think God is fully expressed, or at least way more fully expressed. So cool. And here's the other cool thing about coming together as a community, is not only do we express the fullness of his character much better, but when we live together as a community, share our lives together with one another, and this is the fun but also hard part about community, is other people can see our blind spots that we don't necessarily see. And because they do, they can help us kind of shape our lives even more like the image of who he is. There's all sorts of blind spots that we have in our character that we might not recognize or observe without other people around us calling us out on them in a loving, gracious way. I think we have to, when we exist in a community of relationships, we have to leave room and space and grace for people to call us out 
when we're doing something stupid. <laughs> when we're doing something that is way out of the line of God's character. Um, and, and to be able to receive that humbly and say, you know what, you're right. To be able to have the freedom and the space for people that we're sharing life with to be able to say, you know what, I was watching how you treat your wife the other day and dude, you were kind of a jerk. <laughs> and I don't think that's really how God wants you to treat her, so you should probably like consider speaking maybe this way. Or, hey, I've been you know, hanging out with you at dinners every week for the last several months, and, um, and we get together for coffee so frequently, and I just don't think you're spending enough time with your kids lately. Dude, you're way too preoccupied right now. And sometimes we don't recognize those things, but when somebody else observes it, it, it can enlighten us. Oh my gosh, you're right. And that shapes us in incredible ways. And you guys are getting the idea. I mean, community is obviously critically important to demonstrating who he is and the fullness of who he is through all of our differences, but also helping to shore one another up in an atmosphere of love, grace, and humility so that we can actually help refine each other and develop each other in really, really healthy ways. And secondly, the second way that we can demonstrate, we can express who God is more than just explaining him, but invite people to come and see him through our lives, is through our character. It's not just through our community. And our community helps shape our character, but there's a lot of things that shape our character. And I think our character is vitally important to demonstrating who God is. And I want to differentiate the character from conduct because I'm not talking about conduct because we can really shape our behavior however we want to for so long but it really doesn't demonstrate our character and in fact if we try to change our conduct to look like Jesus but it's not really who we are in character that can often just become hypocrisy and hypocrisy unfortunately has done so much more damage in the church than good it's done a ton of damage. Hypocrisy is when a pastor is somebody totally different on stage than he is every other day of the week. I mean, hypocrisy is when people that go to church on Sunday are this way one day, and then on Monday, when they go to the office, they're completely different people. And that right there has caused, so changing conduct but not character has caused so many people to get a bad taste about Jesus and about religion and about faith because it's not genuine. It's not authentic. It's not really who we are and it's not who he is. And if we're just trying to fake it, it only lasts so long and people catch on. And then it, they just get a bad taste and it becomes damaging and it becomes hurtful. And so rather than changing our conduct, we just need to change our character, which is much deeper work. And I think... A lot of people, and I'm sure we're all guilty of it to some degree or another because we all have good intentions and we all want people to see Jesus. And it seems like it would be easier for them to see Jesus by our conduct, but we don't really have to do the hard work of changing our character. But that always ends up being damaging. Here, even if we have the best of intentions, we need to focus more on our character than our conduct and we have to just be okay with not being perfect. <laughs> we have to be okay with having issues. We have to have a culture of grace enough to where it's okay to be a broken person that's got problems. 
no matter what position you're in, no matter how long you've been at following Jesus, you've got to be okay with your problems. And I think, well, not okay with your problems, okay with having problems and not hiding your problems. I think rather than hiding your problems, stuffing them away, ignoring them, pretending that they don't exist, and then eventually they will just continue to corrupt you and control you and keep you. Here's the problem with hiding your issues and not being vulnerable enough to actually open up your issues to other people is it keeps you from the relationships that we're supposed to have because then we live in fear. Like, I don't want them to really find out who I am. So I'm not going to let them get that close. And then we're not being human. We're not being the people that God made us to be. It's okay to have problems. I think it's so much healthier and so much more effective in calling people and expressing people who Jesus is if we actually are open about our vulnerabilities. We're open about our issues and shortcomings in safe places with the right people, and we demonstrate how to apply God's grace and then how to confess our shortcomings to God and to each other and then how to repent from them and then how to move on and develop the character that actually is Christ-like and demonstrates who He is. That's the, then that becomes the real you. When we're open with our issues, we're open with our vulnerabilities, we're open with our problems, and we actually, in an atmosphere and community of grace, confess them to each other, keep each other accountable in them, and then that's when the character begins to be shaped like Jesus, and we don't have to fake it. And we can actually demonstrate who he is and demonstrate a really incredible, important process in shaping character through confession, repentance, and care. It's as simple as that. And then then we get to offer them the real us. You know, I used to, um, I never intended on doing this. And you guys know that I have a pretty wild upbringing, single parent household, no discipline, no, no structure, no boundaries in all of my upbringing. And so I would do character tests with all of my teachers growing up. I mean, not purposefully, not like, you know, I wasn't smart enough to say, I'm going to do a character test on all of my teachers and see where their real genuine character is. But my behavior was always a character test for them. And you can only hide for so long, right? You can only, like, just, like, put a lid on it for so long, and then all of a sudden you steam and it, you find out who, you really, who they really are. So, um, I, again, I just was a horrible student. And... Um, I remember uh, middle school, all through high school, I would do everything that I could, especially substitute teachers, but I would do everything that I could to get my teachers to just blow their top. Blow their top. Like, just my goal was to get my teachers to yell and scream and embarrass themselves. And so I'd push every button that I could push. And when I was in fifth grade, I had this math teacher, and I really didn't enjoy his class, and so I was horrible in his class, and he would always send me to the back of the room. And so one day, I took my pocket knife to class, because it was before they did all the, you know, checking and screening, and I don't, you know, um, airport security-style schools. Um, but I took my pocket knife to class, because I knew he was going to set me in the back of the class and make me sit in his desk, so I wouldn't be around anybody else, because the peers always, you know encouraged me to do more crazy stuff and I took his and so I took my little screwdriver out of my pocket knife and I took his desk apart and 
He's on the board doing math and doing on the chalkboard, doing all of that, and I literally had his desk in like 20 pieces, legs spread out. It was on the floor, and he was so mad. He kicked me, he yelled, screamed to the top of his lungs, kicked me out of class, made me go to the principal's office. Anyway, that was his character. I revealed it. (laughs) Kind of. Okay. I only say that to lead into this because then I had this other teacher in high school and I could not get her to do anything like that was explosive. I could not get her to frown. I could not get her to get mad. It was driving me crazy. I did everything I could and she would always respond with genuine care and affection for me. And it was like, it started to drive me crazy. Like, I could not find a button in this woman to push for the life of me. Turns out, she was, her name was Mrs. Bradshaw, and she was an incredible teacher. It turns out because that love and genuine care was so consistent and so real that I started to admire this woman deeply and found out later that she was a follower of Jesus and that she was a Christian and she used to go um, to my grandfather's church years back when she was a little girl. And it's like this connection just turned out to be so awesome and just made me so impressed about Jesus. It was one of my first like glimpses of a real Jesus follower and what one looks like and what one doesn't look like. There's the fake ones and there's the real ones. And I think God wants us to be those real ones. To say, to say come and see is just to help have him just shape our character the way that he wants to shape our character. Um, so important. So that's what we see in this. I mean, we see just this whole idea of Jesus is so much better expressed than he is explained or demonstrated by conduct instead of just the, ju- the true, genuine character of who he is. Um, so... One thing I've been thinking about lately, and I think I'll kind of end on this because I think it's just an important theological point, is that the character change that we have is so critical to our salvation. And here's why I say that. Because I think we often think of salvation as Jesus died on my sins, so I, for my sins so I can go to heaven when I die. And that's salvation. And I would say that's not salvation. I know, I know that sounds kind of crazy. I would say... Going to heaven when we die and being with Jesus is a result of our salvation, but salvation is way, way bigger than that. And part of our salvation actually has to do with this character change stuff. It's called sanctification. When I read the Bible and I study what salvation is in biblical terms, I see four different things. I see salvation starting, and okay, here we go. Now Bucky's going to get into the theological jargon. Um, And there's a few words that are a little bit big, but very critical to understanding what salvation is. The first word is justification. I see salvation starting with justification. Justification is what the book of Romans talks so much about. It's about us being made right with God. Oftentimes you hear people say justification is just as if I had never sinned at all. Justified, just if I had never sinned at all. It's kind of a catchy way to remember it. Justification is... Yes, Jesus dying in place of our sins so that we are acceptable to him. Then, after that, what happens? Regeneration. We're born again. We have a new heart. We become a new creation. 
That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he said, how can I get eternal life? And Jesus said, you must be born again. Right now you have a heart that's dead. You're dead. You need to be regenerated, born again, and become new. Then, after regeneration comes, then comes, here's the word that makes our character change. It's called sanctification. Justification, regeneration. Then sanctification is when we start to become conformed more into the image of of who he is. And sanctification happens after and as a result of justification and regeneration when now there's a new creation that can grow and become sanctified and become more in the likeness of who he is. And it happens in relationship with him and it happens in relationship with each other. And then we become more and more and more in the likeness of him, and then we can be those that are always, just by the way that we live our lives, are saying, in word and deed, we're saying, come and see. Come and see who he is. I'm not going to try to fake it. I'm not going to try to hide my issues. I have issues. But this is the kind of character that God is developing in me, and you can have it too. That's evangelism. That's inviting people to follow a life that's worth living and worth having, a life of value and purpose. That is awesome. And then the last aspect of salvation is glorification, which will happen when we actually see him face to face, and then we finally will be perfect. Just like John says, when we see him, we'll become like him in John chapter 1. Anyways, why is all of this so important? Because I think it's so important because we are, in fact, I I won't even try to explain it. I'll let Paul explain it. I'm going to close just with this one passage in 2 Corinthians. This is why this idea of us modeling godly character to others that's genuine and authentic and real is so important because Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us, look at this, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and then has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And this is where it impacts me greatly. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Paul says. I don't think there's a better way to say it. In other words, Jesus reconciled us to God and now gave us the ministry of reconciliation, gave us the message of reconciliation, therefore we're his ambassadors. What he's saying is, because we're reconciled to God, and now he's changing us in the likeness of who he is, and we become his ambassadors, now he's trying to show the world through us what a life looks like that is reconciled to God. And if we show them what a reconciled to God life looks like, and it's genuine, they will want it. But if it's not genuine, they will reject it. So I guess the whole idea of this message is let's just be genuine Jesus followers. And let's let 
Jesus do the hard stuff and changing our character, which takes work and grinding and humility, and then that becomes the good stuff, which becomes fruit-bearing and effectiveness and beauty and inviting others to follow. Amen?